uh, how fit do you need to be for your hunt and how fit are you right now? So I mean, maybe the emails you were getting about guys saying like, hey, I have limited time. I got a job. I have kids. They need to kind of take a hard look at themselves and be like, hey, how fit am I? Is fitness going to hold me back from being successful on this hunt? I know me and my, my hunting partner was at my house last night and we were talking about uh, the podcast and he, he was like, man, he's like, I, I think sometimes it's overemphasized. He's like, I've never been on a hunt and been like, man, if I was in shape, then I could have killed that elk. It's definitely, fitness is not holding us back from killing elk. Us, it's the ability to make the shot happen and seal the deal within 40 yards. guys welcome to the hunt back country podcast and thank you for tuning in this is episode number 211 and we are joined by jake and jordan from atomic athlete jake had joined us previously back in episode 106 to talk about physical training for hunting and he also wrote a free training program that we give away you can find that at exomountaingear.com forward slash train Jake and Jordan are back to talk about hunting, and this has kind of stemmed from some of the things we've seen in the past year or two as it relates to training and hunting. You know, there's a difference between training that is effective and training that's just attractive. You know, there's there's some things out there sold for Instagram, sold for selling sake, and maybe it's not what we need as hunters. And so we just wanted to get on here and chat about what is helpful for hunting. Maybe that's more training for you. Maybe it's not. Maybe, you know, you're fit enough already, as you heard in that intro, and you should focus your time elsewhere. But we wanted to have this conversation and take another look, a close look, at what's actually helpful when it comes to training for hunting. So hope you guys enjoy this one. Let's dive right into it. Jake, uh, welcome back to the Hunt Pack Country podcast, and then you have Jordan on with you as well. Um, Jake, we were, I think it was episode 106, something like that, a long, it feels like a long time ago we had you on the podcast, um, and excited to have you back. Go ahead and give just kind of a quick intro for guys who maybe didn't catch that previous episode, and then maybe uh, introduce Jordan and hand that over to Jordan to give us some background context as well. Awesome. Thanks, Mark. It's good to be on again. Um, yeah. The... Uh... I guess I've been backcountry hunting now for about eight years, and uh, about ten years ago, I started a strength and conditioning company uh, here in Austin, Texas, called uh, Atomic Athlete. And uh, the big difference, I guess, is you know we just kind of provide programming both locally for athletes and online for athletes of a lot of different disciplines and endeavors and sports. Um, and then I found you guys. I think it was a while back. Actually, a buddy, a military buddy of mine, had been using your guys' packs over in Afghanistan. And, he uh he mentioned the packs were awesome, so we ended up getting one, and then started listening to podcasts and started following you, and then done some work with you guys in the past, and I built that uh, backcountry program out for you guys, which I think a lot of people get because we definitely get lots of emails about it. Yeah. Uh, and then, yeah, Jordan has been with the company now, I think six or seven years. Um, mm, yeah. He's also one of the owners, you know, very experienced athlete. Uh, he worked up in uh, Wyoming with another company as well that all the owners had worked with previously and, you know, really high level endurance athlete at one point. Uh, now he's kind of a little more on the meathead side, but a super knowledgeable coach and great training partner. And, you know, 
one of the reasons our company is successful today. That's awesome. Jordan, what is that endurance background? Was that biking, running? What did that look like for you? Yeah, I was a cyclist. Uh, so okay. I raced, I raced for UT. UT has a pretty well-established uh, intramural team. Of course, you know, cycling is, since it's America, it's not a very big sport. So it's not going to be like a NCAA sanctioned sport or anything like that. But we had a really established uh, bicycle team. And uh, so I raced it on, on a at nationals, uh, in 2008, uh, with that team. And then I raced all over with, uh, uh all over Texas with uh, a couple teams here, uh, in Texas. And there's like categories that you go through as you're racing. It starts at five. That's like the novice level. And then there's pro, which is obviously the professional level. And then below that is, uh, uh, categories one and two. And so I was a category two cyclist. And so I raced with, you know, if, if pros were in town or they were passing through or they were whatever they were in that race, I was racing against those guys. Um, and, uh, I did that for basically through my college years, uh, uh, one year afterwards, but then I was like, I got to grow up and, you know, become an adult. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I can't just be a dirtbag racer. I saw those guys, what wasn't the life I wanted. Um, but it was, uh, an extremely good education about what real training looks like and what, uh, actual progression and periodization and the impact that, that that can have on your performance. Um, it was a great education into that thing, like the theory of it and the execution of it. Because I think for a mm. lot of athletes out there, they understand the theory of it, but they don't know how to apply that theory and execute it, uh, in their own lives, in their own sport. Um, and so that's, that's my main, I would say that's my main athletic background. Gotcha. Cool. I know that having talked with you guys both, um, you know, hunting translates well to endurance sports and even, um, Steve has done a lot of mountain bike racing in the past. And he's always even said like, that's what's one of the best things. Like he was never in better hunting shape than when he was mountain biking that much. And that may, may not make sense to guys at first thinking of traditional endurance sports and how that translates well to hunting and backcountry hunting. But Jake, why is that? Like you even say hunting, Western hunting specifically, it's an endurance sport. It's a multi-day event, but like dive into why that's such the case. Yeah. I think, you know, a lot of people may be kind of with what's happening on social media and the kind of rise of the hunter athlete. There may be some misconceptions out there on what you need to do, um, what's, the, what's the best way to prepare. But if you really just look at the nature of the endeavor of you know, Western hunting, um, unless you're a really, really good hunter, it's going to last more than 30 minutes, an hour. Most likely it's going to last anywhere from three days to a month of just continuous work in the mountains. Uh, you mentioned that Steve was a big fan of cycling. And I, I think cycling and riding a, some type of resistance bike, whether it's an assault bike, an airdyne, a uh, concept two bike is one of the best ways that you can build that concentric strength, um, which is basically what you're doing as you're going uphill, especially under load. I mean, you put a, a bike in a heavy gear and you just crank on that thing for like, you know, 30, 45 minutes. It's real similar to going up um, the side of a mountain with a pack on, right? You're, there's no rest. There's no like easy phase of the pedal stroke and you're continually just working. And so I think a lot of people maybe have the misconception that, um, you need to overcomplicate what's happening in preparation for backcountry hunting. It, it is an endurance event. Um, you're not doing anything special up there with the exception of walking with a pack on. 
So contrast that to you kind of mentioned some of the things you're seeing um, on social media or could in the quote unquote like market for hunting specific um, training these days. What are some of the differences um, to call things out a little bit? And then, I mean, what do you think that comes from? Is that just because simplifying things and making it very straightforward isn't, you know, like super appealing on social media or doesn't sell well or what? Like, what is that disconnect? Um, you know, I'm not really sure because you know, if you look at like, I guess, like sports or endeavors or similar kind of adventures to backcountry hunting, um, the one that probably seems the closest to me and Jordan might have an idea as well is probably mountaineering. I mean, basically that whole sport revolves around going up and down big hills. And um, for most people hunting out west, that's pretty much what hunting is. You just got a bow in your hand and the climate's going to be a little bit different. Um, the downside, I think, maybe my hit the nail on the head there, Mark, is that uh, endurance training is boring and it takes a lot of time. Uh, Jordan, what was your like weekly training volume when you were uh, competing? It would, it ranged. Uh, it's, it's going to be broad and it, a lot of it is depending, dependent upon what the race is going to look like, but seven hours would be a, a light week and a heavy week would be 22, 23. I mean, you're looking at that duration right there where it's like, you know, Jordan was serious about training and competing and, um, you know, he's trained seven to 22 hours a week. That's like a part-time job. That's not the same as hitting, uh, a three to five minute wad three to five days per week. I mean, just the dedication and the commitment of time, it's a totally different animal. So I think just like with anything Americans do is that we're kind of always looking for like, oh, well, I want to take the shortcut and the path of least resistance. I want to make this easier and speed up the process. And the bottom line is um, doing certain types of training and certain types of workouts, although they'll build a good level of just general fitness, they're not going to translate to this endeavor and endurance endeavors. Um, like most people think they will, you can't go in and go to the gym, hit a 20 minute, 30 minute session and get the same type of adaptations that are going to happen from someone who's training, let's say, let's just say a reasonable volume for someone who's doing endurance, maybe it's three, four, five hours a week, and maybe going up to about 10, um, you're going to have two very different athletes with those two situations. Okay. So I can I know that a bunch of guys heard that and are like super bummed, <laughs> super disappointed. Like we get guys yeah. reach out all the time who are, um, you know, oh, I, you know, I work 40, 50 hours a week. I've got family and kids like, and it's, it's hard to find the time to hunt. It's far, hard to find the time preseason to, you know, shoot as much as I want to, whatever. And so we basically just told them like, Hey, to train optimally as well. You also need a decent chunk of time for that. So yeah, it, how do you, is there, you basically said it, right? Like there's kind of no shortcut. There is no replacement. You can't just ramp up intensity for a short amount of time and say that that equates to lower intensity for a longer duration. Like those two things are truly different, right? Yeah. I'll let Jordan touch on that. I mean, you're talking like totally different energy system adaptations are happening. Um, and a lot of the studies that show that like, oh, high intensity is so good. It's usually done on a group of like sedentary individuals. So you're just going to like smash them for like, you know, three, four, five, six weeks with some high intensity work and your body's like, oh my God, and it's going to adapt very quickly. The question is what's going to happen uh, three, four, five, six months down the road. Yeah. More thoughts on that, Jordan, like it, coming from your own training, your own perspective, like to build that aerobic base, to build that endurance, there's just, there's no shortcut, right? Uh, that's right. Uh, there, and, and it's, it's so alarmingly simple that people just want to find another 
the way to do it. They think if it's so simple to build an aerobic base, then I'll just do it with a barbell. Um, but the and, and barbells are sexy, especially now, right? There's there's sort of um, our the the moment of our culture with fitness uh, is one where if you look on and it's driven by social media, where you see a guy who is uh, who has this bodybuilder physique or very near it, not not like bodybuilder big, but he's ripped. He has a lot of muscle mass, very lean, not much fat. He's moving a barbell well, and you see him doing all of these things like in a gym, which are impressive. And and that guy looks good. And guys see it, and they're like, that guy's fit. He looks good. Women are attracted to men that look like that. I want to look <laughs> like that guy, and I want to hunt. Right? I mean, stuff, yeah. Strip, yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, I mean, if we just strip flesh from bone, that's a lot of the marketing appeal of it. Uh, I think, though, that one of the things that guys need to understand is that uh, if if I want to be a really great gym athlete, I don't need a mountain. And if I want to be really good in the mountains, I don't need a gym. Mm-hmm. Now, a gym can be a valuable tool to make you better in the mountains. But you have to understand the application of that tool, and that tool cannot become the entire arena for your training. Uh, if you are going to be hunting out west, uh, you're going to cover a, a, a lot of ground, obviously a lot of elevation change, uneven ground, and those things really don't exist in a gym environment. Um, Jake talked about the concentric nature of walking uphill, and that is absolutely true. Whenever you're running on flat ground, your body is using the stretch shortening cycle to sort of propel you forward using the reflexes of your muscles and uh, tendons together to, to move you forward without expending so much effort. You do not have that whenever you're walking up a hill because that phase between your foot contact and then your foot leaving the ground is such a long phase of time. You lose that charge throughout your, throughout your tissues. Uh, mm. And so it's purely contractile. And then the other, the other aspect is that, uh, you know, you're, you're working, you have the pack on, you're working on extending your back to keep your shoulders over your hips, right? Your calves are burning, your hamstrings are working to extend your hips. Like there's a lot of backside of the body work that you have to do just walking in the mountains that you will never experience doing a clean in the gym or doing a back squat in the gym. It's just not going to happen. Um, and so I think that it is, it is important to, uh, understand where, each environment where you're setting, how it plays a role into what it is that you're training for. All right. So now whenever we talk about aerobic base, um, we, we're, what we're really, what we're trying to address is the body's ability to metabolize fat as fuel. All right. To propel us forward. Um, whenever you look at the mechanisms to, to improve that, they are systemic and they're cellular, all right? So it's, it's like the whole cardiovascular system and it's on a very specific cellular level, all right? So we had to develop both of these. Now, whenever Steve talks about, man, whenever I was mountain biking, it was like the best I felt in the mountains, um, that is probably because he was doing a lot of low-intensity work, which was forcing an adaptation in his body, which caused the mitochondria, which are the power plants of your cells, to divide. Every time 
uh, a mitochondria divides, it, it divides into two. So you have one and then you have two. If it happens again, you go from two to four. If it happens again, you go from four to eight. The more mitochondria you have, the more oxygen you can take into those mitochondria. Because another thing that's happening whenever you are dividing mitochondria is that your body is creating more capillaries. And, those, and the, the penetration of those capillaries into the muscle fibers is getting deeper and deeper and deeper. And so uh, they're better at delivering uh, red blood cells to the muscles, which, of course, is red blood cells carry oxygen. All of these things are working in concert to allow you to use that oxygen, pull in the uh, pull in fat, and then use that uh, oxygen to bind the fat, break it down through the cycle, and then use it as fuel. The more mitochondria you have, the more you're going to be able to do that in a certain time instance. All right. So if you have a guy who's working on two mitochondria, all right, this is a very simple example. You have a guy who's working on two mitochondria, there's going to be a traffic jam as opposed to a guy who's working with eight mitochondria. The guy who's working with eight mitochondria, his factory is working four times as fast as a guy with two. And so he's going to be able to propel himself forward using fat. Now, what benefits does this give you? Well, number one, your heart rate is low. Your breathing is easy. You feel relaxed. Number two is you have, a ba you have basically an unlimited amount of fat as fuel in your body, even if you're a super lean guy. Number three, you are not burning sugar, which means that the sugar in your muscle fibers is staying there. All right, sugar, sugar in your muscle fibers is stored as glycogen, and it's staying there. Your body is waiting to use that until it needs it, all right? Um, the other thing is your blood sugar level is staying relatively flat because you're, you're not, your body's not releasing insulin to push that blood sugar into your muscle cells. So you're not going to have as much hunger uh, and your, your energy level is going to feel very sustained. All right, You're not going to have to be interrupted by like, okay, I need to, I need to stop and fuel, whatever. You're going to have to hydrate and everything, of course. That's, that's important. But um, all of these things are beneficial to the athlete because now you're able to go at that low intensity for longer. You're much more efficient and it's simply an easier effort for you. Hmm. So when you're, when you're training, I'm going to like, there's so much good information in there, Jordan. I love geeking on that <laughs> stuff, but like, let me maybe over, I don't say oversimplify, but like, yeah, probably oversimplify this. <laughs> when you train in a method that replicates the demand, right? So like if we're training in a way that replicates what we're trying to achieve in backcountry hunting, it's not simply, it's not as simple as I've done it, therefore I've gotten better at it. But basically what I think you just said, like very simply is you've not, not only done it and gotten better at it, but you've literally like your body has adapted not only to that, but for that, like you're better at it, not simply because you've practiced, but you're better at it and you're more efficient at it literally because your body is adapting to that demand. Is that like a very maybe oversimplification of what we just described there? No, no. The, the principle is specific adaptation to impose demand. So whatever, whatever, you, whatever demand you impose on your body, it is going to specifically adapt for that. Okay? So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's that. It really is that simple. If you're going at a low intensity, at a low and slow kind of pace – um, for long durations, then your body's going to get better at that. Your body is going to make adaptations to make you better at doing that. Now, if we look at hunting, you know, there's not a lot of quick bursts. There's no 10 minute AMRAP in a hunt. Um, so 
there you, you have to understand how important it is for you to train at properly at those intensities. Now, does that mean that you can't use the gym? Again, the gym is a tool that will make you better on the mountains in certain ways, especially whenever it comes to armor and resilience, uh, durability. Those, it's, it's very important. But, um, but at the same time, we just cannot overstate its importance. And what I see a lot on social media uh, is, you know, guys, uh, guys who are they're trying to replace the importance of being outside in the elements on the mountain with uh, a, a gym environment. And, and as Jake stated earlier, you, you just you simply cannot do that. Your body, your body actually doesn't know how if you go four miles or five miles, it knows it, it knows the duration. It knows, OK, I've been moving for 40 minutes or an hour or 90 minutes and it knows okay i've only been moving for 10 minutes and your body knows the intensity at, at which you're working but it doesn't know if you're lifting 155 pounds or 355 pounds your body has no idea about distance or weight it only knows about duration and intensity and so you have to try to imagine that you are going to lock in most of your volume and most of your intensity in the ones that are going to be replicated in your hunt now, that is the main bracket of work that you're going to do. And then you have to say, but there is there is an intensity above this and intensity below this. I need to get some work in both of those areas outside of my main working intensity and volume. That's that's important. And that's smart. You need to do that. The gym can come in handy, especially with the higher intensity stuff. Right. But it cannot entirely replace it. Jake, the bulk of what we do, you know, in backcountry hunting is that lower intensity. It's moving for a long distance, a long period of time. But then, and Jordan, you just hinted this as well. There's, there's also certain demands where we can't say that, um, backcountry hunting is equivalent to cycling or equivalent to trail running or something to that effect, because there is, um, a couple other demands, especially as it comes to external load. And that I, I would say even for me, like I've noticed as I've changed body composition, for example, it, it different. Um, weights and in different ways with different training styles that like there's this theory that lighter is better for the mountains which is probably true for most folks they probably do need to be lighter but I've also noticed that dropping body composition to a certain level I just feel less durable and less capable to handle an external load um, so number one I, I do want to talk about external load and how strength component does play a part just maybe not the primary part but then I do also want to talk about intensity a little bit um, in the situation where, for example, maybe you do have to make a quick push, like maybe you're, you're low intensity for the last three days, but now there's an elk that's at a difficult location to reach and the window's potentially short and you do have to make a quicker, harder push. So I just want to round out like this discussion, and this is probably going to lead us to how we look at training from a high level in terms of, um, you know, aerobic base versus intensity versus strength. But how do intensity and strength play into what we do, Jake? Well, I would say, you know, first of all, typically I'm guessing the strength component that you're kind of experiencing is probably not with your daily hunting pack. You know, it's 15 to 20 pounds, right? Maybe 25 pounds. But when this is going to come into play is, for example, you're backpacking into the wilderness for a 10-day hunt. Um, it's going to come into play when you're breaking down a larger animal like an elk or a moose. And now you have to pack quarters out to either get extracted or pack them out somewhere where you're going to reset and then pack the entire animal out. So depending on the kind of hunt you're doing, 
um, you may experience very heavy loads, you know, anywhere from 85 to 150 pounds. Um, this also has to be considered a fact is, am I by myself? Am I elk hunting solo? Or do I have three buddies in the mountain? With me? So the amount of strength training that is required or suggested and the ability to carry a heavy load is going to be pretty dependent on how and where you hunt. Um, if you're hunting a mule deer or an antelope, probably don't need to spend too much time carrying heavy packs, right? If you plan on going eight miles in the backcountry solo and you're like, hey, if I get an elk down and there's no packers, I'm going to have to pack this whole thing out on my own. Um, and if it's during archery season, you're going to do that in a very fast manner. So how much strength work and how much heavy load training is going to be dependent on the kind of hunt you're doing. If you're in like third rifle season in Colorado, you have a lot of time to get that meat out because most likely it's going to be snowing out. It's going to be cold. That meat can hang on a meat pole probably for three, four, five days, maybe even longer. So uh, I would say that with heavy external loads, you can almost look at it as the percentage of your body weight. Um, if I give a 120-pound female a 50-pound pack, I mean, that's a large portion of her body weight, you know, 40, 45%. If I give a 250-pound guy a 50-pound pack, it's only 20% of his body weight. So he's relatively doing a lot less work, even if he does have less than ideal body composition. So I think for each athlete, probably you're a pretty tall guy, if I'm not mistaken, right, Mark? Yeah, I'm like 6'2". Six 6'2", two. Six two, okay. And so when you said you were kind of on the leaner side, like how much did you weigh? So... For me personally, if I'm like 180, I feel light, but almost too light. And then if I'm like between 185 and 190, like just that extra five to seven pounds, um, yeah. I feel way different. Yeah. So I'm 5'7 and I'm 180, right? And I'm, I'm probably going to be a little bit lighter when I go into the mountains. Right? It's kind of winter time, so we're bulking up. So in a situation like that, your ideal body composition and body weight maybe more along the lines of 190 because at that point you probably stepped away from so much strength training and focused so much on endurance there's probably some atrophy and you're kind of lacking that that low back durability maybe the mus musculature in your uh, traps and your back to carry those heavy external loads so that's a good kind of like before and after situation for you where it's like hey 180 i'm too light i feel kind of fragile right but maybe at 190 like hey 190 i feel strong and that additional you know five to ten pounds of muscle mass, I would imagine, because you're a pretty lean guy, um, is not really impacting how you move over ground. Does that kind of make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there's going to be like a, a, a tipping point, I would say, for anyone. Like me at 145, like if I cut weight like a fighter would, I would be too delicate to carry heavy frames, right? Like I would have to lay off the strength training. I'd probably have to reduce my calories. I could get down there, and but I'd be really thin, light, and kind of wiry. And that would be fine if I was doing uh, a trail race. That'd probably be ideal. But if I'm going to try to throw on an elk hind quarter and a loin and maybe some scrap meat, then I'm probably going to get crushed, right? Because my frame is just so much smaller. Yeah, that's helpful. And that's it. I love that you equated it, and again, just super simple, but like you equate it to really looking at the demands of the hunt. Like, are you doing that antelope hunt? Are you doing a backcountry solo elk hunt too? Like we can say it's hunting and hunting and training to hunt, but like that's so generic and so getting specific although very simple is really helpful with that on the strength side what about intensity jake that whole idea that for days we're low intense we're covering long distance um and over a long period of time but then where does intensity come into play of being able to make a quick push or maybe just you know a super steep climb um that begins to feel oh i'm not just walking anymore like this feels very intense how does that come to play in our training what should we 
Um, how should we integrate that basically just in terms of like a super high level is that it's good to do a work capacity effort like one day a week for guys like us i mean what does that look like so i think um one thing i just want to make clear to everyone listening is that like me and jordan may sound like endurance proponents right now and and we're not um we are strength and conditioning coaches and we program for military guys for fighters for climbers for all different types of disciplines right in regards to western hunting we are saying that the way you should train is an endurance endurance biased approach. All right. Now, if you said like, Hey, I'm trying, try, trying out for um, this Brazilian jiu-jitsu team, or I'm going to go try to do this across the net. We trained CrossFit athletes before we've competed before. Uh, it's important to understand that it's, it's the specific endeavor that is influenced what we're saying right now. Okay. So I just want to kind of make that clear. Um, me and Jordan spend a lot of time in the gym. We lift a lot. We love work capacity. It's a great all around training tool. I think the key idea though, Mark, is that the vast majority of your training needs to be low intensity. All right. So all too often what happens is guys kind of train at this like in between state. They're like, uh, they're going hard, but not super hard. Right. It's much better to spend a lot of time. Maybe it's going to depend on what sport or endeavor you're doing. But it could be as much as 80 to 90% of your total training volume. And that would be probably in minutes, right? Um, should be on the low intensity side. And then, you know, maybe 10 to 15, maybe 20%, depending on what kind of athlete you are, would be on the high intensity side. And what we want to do is we want to make the low intensity very low, all right? And so for most people, you could use a heart rate monitor and you can use a pace chart. They can zone one, zone two. And then when you do go hard, you go very hard. You don't have that kind of half-ass middle ground, you know, where you're just kind of right there tiptoeing. You're not really getting the benefits of high intensity. You're not really getting the benefits of low intensity. So especially right now in this time frame, where I'm not sure when the video of this episode will get released, but it's like, you know, January, early February. Um, your, your training can definitely include like a weekly high intensity work capacity. Um, you can probably even do two high intensity work capacities depending on the duration. Now, what you want to want to do is two like, 30 to 40 minute grueling, grueling hard work capacities because that time would be better spent in this earlier phase of building your aerobic base. But hitting a 10 minute AMRAP, that's absolutely fine. Um, but as you get closer and closer to the hunt, those work capacity or higher intensity efforts would be, you wouldn't be doing power cleans for time, you know, two weeks before a hunt. Um, that would be a common like CrossFit style workout. Uh, you can maybe do something like that now if you enjoy doing CrossFit, right? But as you start moving closer to the season, then the tire drag, for example, done at a high intensity would be an appropriate specific high intensity workout for backcountry hunting. You don't want to start throwing in these modalities that are not going to directly translate to performance when you're actually hunting. Got it. Jordan, can you talk a bit about um, developing that aerobic base and from my understanding, like that takes time, right? Like the, and I don't mean time in terms of, yeah, you need to go out and do something for 90 minutes, but like that specific adaptation takes time. And so maybe, you know, just talk about the importance of this time of year as, as Jake just mentioned, like January, February, you want to start now. Like it is, it's not full, you know, you don't need to be in full hunt mode, if you will. Like you don't need to be doing now what you would be doing six weeks from a big hunt. But can you talk about the importance of developing that base over a longer period of time? Yeah. The, the idea behind uh, training now would be just to, I mean, hunt, there are hunting seasons. And 
hunters are athletes and they need to treat their calendar of training just like any other athlete would who who has a season um and obviously there are, are football seasons right and those football athletes they're doing certain things now that they're not going to do um you know after the well the season's over for a lot of football athletes so <laughs> they they are moving on to um like their, their off-season stuff but your off-season training is not going to match your preseason training and your preseason training is not going to match your your in-season training and then even your in-season training is going to have different phases where you're going to go from you're going to go from your in-season training to your peaking training. Uh, and so there are different phases and it's important to understand where you should lie on that calendar, on that timeline. Um, base building does does take time. The idea behind base building is that if your body is a matchbook then you are going to increase the number of matches in that matchbook so that whenever it comes time for you to hunt, uh, you have more matches in your matchbook than you need, which means that as you burn those matches, you can you, you, you know, like, okay, I've got more left. I've got more left. And now, uh, now at this point, um, the idea is, that basically like those uh, in, in cycling, we had, we had a, a, a saying, which was uh, June races are, are won in January. June was a, is a big month for racing. There's a lot of big, big races around that time. And so the guys who win those are training hard in, in, or are training easy in January. They're doing their base building uh, in, in January so that they can build up the – so they can use all that time. From January, February, March, April, just building up the number of matches in their matchbook. And the guys who are winning those like March, April, May races, those guys are starting already to tap into all of that capacity that they've built. And they're starting to burn those matches away. Now I'm using cycling as an example because that's that's my background. This applies to any sport. Um, and so you have to you have to be disciplined about the desire to continue to build the number of matches in your matchbook. The way that that comes uh, with an advantage down the line is that the more matches you have in the matchbook, then the the more you can train those matches to burn hotter and hotter and hotter. So that in the case where you do have to make a hard push to close a gap on an elk or whatever situation it may be that you need to make a hard push, now, not only do you have an abundance of matches, but each one of those matches is going to burn hotter and longer than what they would have if you did not build those. All right. So base building works to big advantages. Base building is a force multiplier up the pyramid of intensity. But being at uh, working only high intensity stuff, it doesn't work backwards as much. Working at high intensities, working at high intensities early on in the season does not have a, a as big of a benefit down the pyramid as uh, building base and having those matches built in ha- has up the pyramid. Does that make sense, Mark? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So, so now uh, I would say for hunters, working on that low intensity work is important. Now you, you brought up a really good point where like whenever you feel 
whenever you feel too light, you kind of feel like maybe a little frail, maybe a little exposed. Like if you were to take a fall, you may be worried about popping a collarbone or having some sort of issue, or maybe you feel like you may fall whenever you have if but as opposed to whenever you have five more pounds on your body, you feel a lot more stable uh, with your footing, whatever it may be with your posture under the the load that you're carrying. That is really important to maintain as you continue through your base period. So you are going to be uh, building up that uh, those number of matches, but you can't just throw out all of the other things that you, that you could be doing, like some maintenance work on maintaining some muscle mass and everything like that, because that comes into that comes into play. Also, you may have a day job, right? Or kids that you want to play with. And like, you want to have some energy left over for them. All of these are factors that you have to bring in. Um, but, but you cannot say, well, I see the guy on social media. He says he's a hunter. He's doing basically CrossFit for hunters. Uh, and so now I want to do that because that's going to replace this other stuff. That's, I think, uh, a lot of what we're saying here. Um, that, uh, just, just because you see something marketed as CrossFit for hunters does not mean it's the best thing actually for you. And it just takes a little bit of discipline. Now I've been talking a lot about this, this base stuff, and this is a phase of training that you go into. Once you have base, then you have it and you don't need to work on it as much. You only need to maintain it. Just like whenever you have, like if you get to your target weight, Mark, let's say you get up to 190 and you're at your target weight, then you only need to do what you need to do nutrition and strength training wise to maintain that weight. The rest of it, the rest of your training needs to be put into other things that that are now shortcomings. Okay. So once you build up that required base, then you can start to shift your training model to fit other shortcomings in your fitness. That's another important key. Yeah. And also, Mark, that, that kind of ties into the idea of uh, how fit do you need to be for your hunt and how fit are you right now? So I mean, maybe the emails you were getting about guys saying like, hey, I have limited time. I got a job. I have kids. They need to kind of take a hard look at themselves and be like, hey, how fit am I? Is fitness going to hold me back from being successful on this hunt? I know me and my, my hunting partner was at my house last night and we were talking about uh, the podcast. And he, he was like, man, he's like, I, I think sometimes it's overemphasized where he's like, I've never been on a hunt and been like, man, if I was in shape, then I could have killed that elk. It's definitely, fitness is not holding us back from killing elk. Us, it's the ability to make the shot happen and seal the deal within 40 yards. It's kind of like, that. that's where we're missing. We're getting there, we're right. finding them. And so for us, like a lot of our training time in, like in or relatively speaking to hunting is not going to be building fitness, building fitness, building fitness for us. Um, if you're a pretty fit guy already, you just do what you need to do, especially if you're not going to do a very demanding hunt. Right. But if you're like a white collar guy working behind a computer and you're overweight, um, but maybe you're a really good shot with your bow and you can call really well, then most of your free time should be spent dealing with the fitness problem. Um, if you're on the other side of the equation, like someone like you, I could imagine Mark, you probably is pretty fit. You have a great, like tall frame, which is awesome in the mountains. You can move over the ground really well. Then maybe for you, because you live out of state, it's going to be calling or scouting, or maybe because, like, say, you might be trying to go to Wyoming. Like, maybe your free time is not spent just hammering more and more base, because I don't know if fitness holds you back, but maybe it's better spent doing those other activities that could yield to a better hunt down the road. 
Yeah. No, that brings up a great point. I mean, it's always, um, it, it's much easier to play to your strengths than it is to work on your weaknesses. And I think that is a big trap where you'll see guys like they're the fitness guy. So they're all about fitness. Well, that's their strength. They don't need to yeah. necessarily work as much there. Or there's some other guy who's all about shooting. Right. And it's so like to him, everything's shooting. That's all he talks about. That's, you know, guys should shoot more. It's just so easy to stay in your area of strength versus going back yeah. to what you just said, Jordan, like work on your weaknesses. Like once you have, once you get to good enough, right. Mm-hmm. address your weaknesses. That's where you're going to, you know, making a, a 5% increase where you're already exceptional isn't going to make as big of a difference as it would be to make a 40% increase where you have a weakness. And not only That's that, it. but I think it's much actually easier to make that 40% increase on your weakness versus optimizing every last little minute minutia and detail to make, you know, that 5% increase where you're already um, accomplished, right? That's absolutely. absolutely right. Yeah. And it's just it's it's having that well-adjusted, comprehensive understanding of of everything that it goes into hunting that is that that we're, we're actually that's that we're trying to address. Um, we're just simply trying to uh, make sure that as hunting grows in popularity, that it does not fall into the same trap that a lot of uh, other sports fell into uh, in the early 2000s with the CrossFit craze. If you remember whenever Jim Jones started, Mark Twight, he was a cyclist and he was one of their early adopters of, of CrossFit. And these studies were coming out that it was like, oh yeah, high intensity training will improve your, uh, your low intensity work. It improves your VO2 max. And he went into it heavy and um, stopped doing a lot of the longer rides, the, the longer efforts at that low intensity. Years later, uh, he started to realize that he had lost something in all of that volume that could not be replaced. And he distanced himself, distanced himself considerably from CrossFit at that point and realized that the time-tested methods that had been used by endurance athletes and coaches still had merit and in fact far more merit than these six-week studies that were really in their methodology riddled with confirmation bias um and so he he actually released a couple of blog articles that that kind of reset his way of thinking and i think that that was an important thing to do because mark twight and jim jones are pretty influential players in um the fitness world especially because of his impact on you know some of the hollywood guys they have come through there and, and trained with him. Uh, it, a little bit of an outsized um, uh, influence, maybe, but it, it's he's he's still an influential player. And so, um, uh, he under, understanding the pitfalls of what looks attractive, attractive and is very marketable is key for hunters who now, like hunters, through uh, you know Steve Meaty or all these things, like. All as all of these people, Joe Rogan, right? He's he's pulling a lot of people into hunting. Um, as hunting starts to grow, hopefully, we can help and and through you through your podcast can help hunters understand not to fall into the pitfalls of what looks attractive but isn't effective. Working on your working on your weaknesses, understanding the nature of the sport, uh, improving those weaknesses. And, uh, and trying to close the gap to become a more complete hunter. That's what we're 
proposing here, whether or not that's moving a barbell, moving over ground nice and slow, working on your technical aspects with calling, scouting, um, shot, actual shot execution, all of those things, those play a role. Got it. Good. Jake, can you touch on, um, I mean, we've hinted at this like, and said it plainly, like the gym environment is a tool, but it isn't everything. And you don't have to have a gym to be good in the mountains and vice versa. Can you, not speaking strictly of gym, gym training, but can you just kind of talk about the value of while you're training, maybe exposing yourself to discomfort beyond the training? So meaning training outside, maybe training on little sleep, maybe training through bad weather and just kind of, you know, exposing yourself to the elements, if you will, and not just, you know, being in a nice, clean gym environment and, you know, getting your low intensity on a treadmill, for example. Yeah, I think like I kind of compare like a work capacity or like a high intensity like Metcon maybe. Yeah, that's kind of like getting punched in the face once really hard. Like it's just a shock. You're like, oh my God, this is awful. This is hard. Um, but five minutes later, it's better. And I think the ability to handle that discomfort is a lot different than what's uh, experienced in the backcountry. Um, the backcountry is more like, you know, someone just taking their thumb and pushing it into your forehead and they're just holding it there and applying pressure for like three, four, five, six days where um, it's a totally different type of discomfort. Um, and it's usually also uh, exacerbated by the fact that you're going to have potentially blisters. You're going to have wet boots. Um, it's going to be cold. It's going to be rainy. You're probably going to slip. You're going to fall. You may get hungry. You may get a cut. It's infected, you know, your lips might crack. There's so many things that happen in the backcountry for when you're back there for an extended period of time. It's kind of hard to practice those things, especially in a controlled gym environment where you are in shorts and boots and it's climate controlled. Um, you know, everything's perfectly balanced and it's nice and smooth and your running surface is great. You're pushing a sled on turf. Uh, you have to become accustomed to just general discomfort over long periods of time, um, typically in the elements as well. And that's, I think a lot of people may kind of not think about that when they go out on their first hunt. Um, you know, coming in, especially during archery season, for example, the days are much longer, you know, depending on where your camp is, you may have an hour to an hour and a half like in and then back out in the dark. And then by the time you reset your camp, you're only getting, you know, five or six hours of sleep potentially and you compound that over 10 plus days um that's challenging and then to go out and expect to be moving at peak performance the entire day because you never know when that you know elk or deer might pop up um that's something that's very challenging to prepare for so i think guys that i think actually you know guys who probably work in the elements are naturally going to be able to do better in the backcountry if you're let's just say on a road crew or you're a roofer or you're uh do construction I mean, you're out there in the elements working, doesn't matter if it's rainy, cold, hot, um, you're out there all day just physically doing work and you're going to be better off if you go in the mountains than the guy who sits, maybe he's in a hospital and works in the air conditioning as, you know, uh, a doctor or a nurse or a medic, whatever it may be, or someone who's a corporate sales guy who's, you know, sitting down all day on a phone. Um, so I think you kind of have to also think about those other factors that can really, really make it much more challenging. And that's kind of where the mental toughness side would come in. Uh, I think sometimes people can say like, oh, the mental toughness in the gym will translate to the backcountry. And from my experience, 
that's not what I've seen. Uh, personally, at one point when I was a really good gym athlete and kind of got broken in the mountains, and then I've taken multiple guys who are Jordan's one of them, right? You know, I've taken some of those guys in the backcountry who are phenomenal athletes, and their first trip into backcountry, uh, it can break them. You know, I take guys into New Mexico every year. I took uh, two or three pretty high-level guys in CrossFit at one point back there and they had just never done anything over that duration and now you're talking moving through the snow for seven hours um it's just an experience that's really hard to train the gym and so you can't expect that like hey hard 30 minute efforts in the gym is going to translate to me being mentally tough for six days in the backcountry i don't know that i've ever thought of it this way but just hearing you talk about it it you know, what we said earlier about specific adaptation to specific demand, that, that almost applies to mental toughness, right? Like those high level CrossFit guys are very mentally tough when it maybe comes to getting under a heavy barbell. And so, yeah, they're mentally tough, but they're mentally tough for that and not for the specific demands of backcountry hunting. So maybe even mental toughness is, you know, um, method specific, if you will, in a way. It absolutely, absolutely is. Absolutely is. I mean, suffering on it, like, like the way Jordan used to ride his bike. Um, compared to how high-level jiu-jitsu players grapple, um, compared to uh, a CrossFit athlete that is doing one of the, the main wads at the time, which may be like two or three minutes long. Like those are all very awesome ways of testing and building mental toughness. The question is, which way is going to best behoove the hunter to do on a regular basis? You know what I mean? Like going out and spending a night like in your hometown, like, hey, it's raining outside. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go out to this piece of like vegetation or a park or whatever it may be. I'm going to set up my camp in the rain and I'm going to intentionally have a miserable night. Like doing things like that, that's going to have a huge amount of uh, value when it actually happens on the hunt because you've already experienced it once. You've done it before. It's not the end of the world. Um, I mean, wearing wet boots. I remember the first time I went, uh, I guess it was probably like four or five years ago in a wilderness area. And like the first day of the hunt, we moved in a massive like rainstorm. I had wet boots for like four or five days and it was every morning waking up and putting those boots on was just like the first thing that you experience is such a defeating feeling of like sliding your foot into like a half frozen wet boot. And you're like, I'm going to have to have this on for the next, you know, 14 hours. And like, that's something that you just can't build in the gym. Like you just have to go out in the elements. You have to do things that are uncomfortable um, you're going to have to like really understand that like the, the endeavor and the nature of backcountry hunting. It's like a lot of guys are really attracted to it because it is so challenging and it is kind of like a question, like a test in the woods against nature. Um, but you can't expect it to be easy. You kind of have to be like, oh, well, this is everything that everyone talks about. Then you should be tested at some point. It should be uncomfortable. and It should be very challenging. Jordan, since we're, I don't know, maybe addressing social media type topics, if you will, and kind of trying to set the record straight, another uh, area to touch on and hopefully just simplify um, that I think there's a lot of misinformation about there is just kind of the piece of recovery and then specifically whether it's for recovery or performance, but supplements, um, a no big topic, but like from your guys' experience, what is helpful? What is valuable? Um, just kind of help us wade through that because there's there's just so much out there. He's a big fan of mountain carbs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. What was that? that was there was some supplement that was like, it was like 
for, for hunters, like if you're going to be in the mountain or something like that, like there, are, like there are special mountain carbs that you eat and you will perform better in the mountain. <laughs> I'm not exactly sure what the, what, what they were trying to get at with it. But, uh, yeah. in turn, in, in terms of supplementation, uh, I, th- there are, there are good supplements out there and there are, there are things that, especially if you're in your mid to late thirties and, and you're hunting, then you're really going to want to add into your your diet. Pro, protein is one. Um, getting getting really protein is is good just because of its availability uh, post training. Uh, a multivitamin is another one, and really this just addresses uh, gaps that you may have in your current intake of vegetables uh, and and other sources of vitamins. Um, fish oil is another good one to help take care of and store a little bit more water in your joints. Um, creatine can be beneficial, especially if you're a light, a lean guy looking to gain a little bit of weight. Uh, creatine can also help if you are, um, looking to gain a little bit of an edge in, um, on your high intensity efforts or on your weightlifting. If you're again, if you're in that phase, that's something that you're working on. Creatine is is the lowest uh, on that totem pole of supplements. Protein being the first, uh, and then uh, multivitamin being second, and then uh, joint health with a little bit of fish oil would be third. Th- those are three that I would add in. Um, all of the neurotropics and and all that kind of stuff. That is all. In in my in my opinion, in my uh, in my studies of those things. They hold very little value. Um, they have they're essentially placebos. Um, but if that if 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 you have uh, a positive experience with them, then go go ahead and use them. But um, I would say the big the big three still just protein, multivitamin, fish oil. Um, in the broader context of nutrition and preparing for for hunting. You have to understand, first of all, your body type. Are you an endomorph where you're a really easy gainer? You store a lot of fat. Uh, are you a mesomorph, like a generally kind of athletic build, um, good mix of muscle, good mix of fat? Or are you an ectomorph, tall, mostly uh, taller guy, um, narrower through the midsection, kind of longer arms, uh, and just naturally very, very lean, a hard gainer? You need to understand your body type. And then you need to understand what what is the purpose of different the different macronutrients, right? Protein is a macronutrient, carbohydrates are a macronutrient, and fats are a ma- macronutrient. Those are the three big mac- macronutrients that you need to take in. What are the roles, all right? Protein is a raw material, um, not a very good source of energy. Carbohydrates is a fuel that provides um, glucose, uh, which is stored in the tissues is glycogen, uh, and it fuels your muscles and your brain. Your muscles and your brain are they work off of glucose, which are provided by carbohydrates. Uh, and then there's fat, which is um, a it, it's used in a lot of key things, um, like for example, the membranes of your cells, really important. Um, <clears throat> it's also used for um, storing energy. It stores twice as much energy as uh, carbohydrates, so it's it's a really key point. How much do you need, though? Um, 
the it, you do you do you don't really need a ton of fat, um, but you do need carbohydrates and you do need protein in order to you need protein because protein transfer is something that is real. As you train, protein breaks down. Your body shovels it out uh, as waste, and you have to replace that protein with more raw materials to build that up. Okay, um, carbohydrates since they are a source of fuel, all right, for your muscles and your brain, you really need a lot of those. Uh, a lot of, in, in terms of debunking or, or addressing some of the things out on social media that are big right now, um, these low-carb, high-fat and protein diets um, are a trap, especially for hunters, because hunters are going, you absolutely need your carbohydrates uh, in the backcountry to keep yourself fueled and sharp day after day. And in your training, you absolutely need carbohydrates to make sure that every subsequent training uh, um, session is as quality as the prior one. Because if you're not refueling yourself properly, then your training quality is going to drop over time. The, the way one of the to tie all this back into the supplements question that you asked, Mark, um, I think it is important for athletes to understand that whenever they recover from a training session, they are also and more importantly, recovering for the next training session. So supplement this is where supplements come into play most most um, acutely in an athlete's life. You, if you build your, if you build a, a like a target, where your training is the bullseye of the target, and then you have that first ring outside of the target, that is what I define as your peri nutrition. It is the nutrition that you address directly around your training. All right, that is the first thing that a person who's trying to address their diet should look into and should dial in. You should create a habit of good peri nutrition. Specifically, you should eat a, a, a simple sugar about 30 minutes before you train to level out uh, your and provide a little bit of a bump actually to your blood sugar levels. Go ahead and train, do whatever training you need to do. And then afterwards, this is where the process of preparing for the next training session begins. So taking in that protein and carbohydrate mix directly after a training session, of course, it's going to help your body refuel from what you just burned and it's going to switch you from a catabolic state where you have where more protein breakdown is happening than protein synthesis into an anabolic state an anabolic state in your body is when more protein synthesis is happening the protein breakdown you want to make that switch as soon after your training as possible but the other thing that's happening is your body is starting to refuel itself, refuel its muscle tissues, refuel the brain, all that kind of stuff for the next training session, probably 24 hours after, 18 to 24 hours after uh, this training session today. People typically train at the same time or around the same time every day. Um, and so if the refueling process, the process of digestion is a long process. The, the food that you ate for breakfast isn't going to impact you until tomorrow, really right? That whole cycle is about 18 to 24 hours. And so as soon as you get done training, those supplements come into play because they're so available to immediately begin that preparation for the next training session. Now, if you're not getting that, or if you're lackadaisical about it, or you're not getting the proper amount of macronutrients, then 
you're looking at a situation where the next day you come to train, you kind of feel like garbage. And you train, you go ahead and train, you push through it because you're a disciplined athlete and you know the importance of it. And then you're lackadaisical about your nutrition again. And so the next day you're like, oh man, I feel even worse. So like I'm, you know, I'm not getting the quality of training out of the quality out of my training as I should be. Well, because you're working at a deficit, you're always behind the eight ball because you're not, you don't have your perinutrition dialed in. So this is the importance of supplementation and um, why they should play an important role in your training regimen. Okay. This is a loaded question, probably, Jordan. I don't know if you have any simple advice, but how does someone manage, um, like someone take their trying to improve their body composition, specifically for hunting? A lot of guys, that's going to include dropping some weight. How do they balance weight loss and being fueled enough to uh, train well, um, you know, with some duration, with, you know, basically having that energy? Yeah. Okay, so uh, this is essentially a, qu- a question of another way to put this, Mark, is how do I proportion my diet to lose weight and maintain energy? So when I say proportion, I mean proportion of macronutrients. We again, three macronutrients: protein, carbohydrates, and fat. Um, if you want to shed some weight while maintaining your energy levels. Okay, you have to operate at a calorie deficit because uh, you want to lose weight. And the more calorie, if you're bringing in more calories than you're burning, then you're going to gain weight. All right, you're going to store that extra food as um, fat, most likely, uh, or your body's going to turn the protein, the raw materials of protein that you're bringing in, and it's going to turn it into muscle. Muscle is denser than fat. Um, one thing I would caution here, actually, let me, let me just take one step back if I can, Mark. Um, a lot of the times when people say that they want to drop weight or lose weight, what they're actually saying is I want to change my body composition. Okay. So let's say that you're at 185 or let, no, Mark, let's say you're at uh, 195 and you're like, well, uh, I want to, no, 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 back up. Let's say you're at 190, which is like a target weight for a guy, your size, your friend. All right. And you're like, man, I want to, I want to drop a little bit of weight because, you know, I want to be 185 when I go in the mountains. What you may actually be saying is I want to trim down some of the fat that I have and turn that fat, which is not lean mass into lean mass into muscle. Now, now you may lose, um, in that process, you may lose, you're going to lose fat and you're going to gain muscle, but let's say you lose four pounds of fat. If you gain two pounds of muscle, you're going to weigh exactly the same but your body composition is going to be significantly better. So uh, first, let's address the question of, do I need to lose weight or do I need to change my body composition? That's, that's important. Um, second, proportion. A lot of this plays into what kind of body type you have because your body type is determined by your genetics. We do not control our genetics. And your genetics are the biggest factor into what your diet can look like and still like really be able to benefit from it, right? The super lean guys that are hard gainers, um, they, they're going to have a little bit more leeway than a guy who naturally is a heavier guy. Um, so understand your body uh, shape first. There's three, ectomorph, skinny, hard gainers, mesomorphs, right down the road, athletic build, uh, and then endomorphs, Bigger guys, a little bit rounder, store fat easier. Hard losers. Uh, 
what proportion should you maintain if you want to lose slash change your body composition? Well, you, you want to maintain, so for, for the, for the uh, ectomorph, you're going to have probably about 40 to, uh, 40 to 50% of your calories from carbohydrates. You're going to have a little bit, you're going to have, um, you know, uh, probably 25% from fats and then the remaining from protein. If you're a mesomorph, you're going to have an even proportion of carbohydrates uh, and protein. And then uh, the remainder will come, the remainder of your calories will come from fat. So uh, it would be something like um, 40% of your protein, 40% of your calories from protein, 40% of your protein from carbohydrates, 20% of your protein from uh, fats. And then finally, your endomorphs. They're going to have about 35% from carbohydrates. Uh, they're going to have about 35% from um, protein and then the remainder from fats. So even if you're trying to lose weight, you want to keep those proportions intact, but you're just going to lower the ceiling on all of those. You're going to lower your daily intake, but you're going to do it in proportion to one another. That simply takes discipline. I think I think the idea of eating a certain number of calories is pretty inherently obvious to a lot of people out there. It's just understanding that you have to have the discipline to lower that ceiling of daily caloric intake that you're going to allow yourself. Um, and that, that's, that's a little bit more of a complex question, but that's the simplest explanation I, I can give for it. Jake, do you have anything to add there? Yeah, I think, I think, Mark, the guys that they're listening, you really need to kind of take a hard look at yourself and be like, okay, hey, am I overweight? And if you're overweight, probably your first priority is to lose weight. So if you're, you know, 5'9", five, 5'10", five, five, 230 pounds, and you have like a pretty good size, like beer belly on you, that probably is going to be one of the best ways to improve your performance is to get rid of that. I mean, if you go from like 230 to 200 pounds, right, over the period of the next six to nine months before like archery season, your ability to move over ground is going to drastically improve, even if your fitness stays exactly the same. Mm-hmm. It'd be like like giving me and Jordan a 30-pound weight vest, right? And be like, hey, run up that mountain. And then two days later, say, hey, take that vest off and try it again. Our fitness is exactly the same. We're just moving less weight. And so if you're a heavy guy and you can just cut weight, I mean, your conditioning can stay the same and you're going to move over ground a whole lot faster by not carrying that extra mass. So if you fall in that category – you know, in the order of priorities, um, losing weight may become number one over, you know, building aerobic base and shooting your bow and calling or whatever it may be. And the good thing is typically, you know, losing that weight is going to go hand in hand with some physical training as well as dialing in your nutrition. So you're probably still going to get the base to improve, but the main priority is just getting rid of that extra weight. Two quick things. One, let's like, I just want to, we were planning on um, talking about some hunting stories or like lessons learned a little bit, Jake, from your past season and spent yeah. so much good time on uh, training. We're out of that. And I want to come back to one final yeah, training question, good. but let's hit pause. I do want to ask you kind of just about like one topic that came up as we were chatting, um, you know, as it relates to hunting and part of your experience and you don't have to like dive into a story by any means. But I think one of the topics that came up was just understanding that part of the um part of the satisfaction that you would get out of hunting isn't from filling a tag but it's the experience of the hunt um and i know that you've kind of had some experiences that led you to realize like 
man, like how you do it is as important as anything. And I'm not, yeah. So what are your, what did you learn there? Like, I don't want to put the words in your mouth to answer that question, but that whole kind of topic, I just want to hit pause on training and hear about that. Cause it's, I think it's important to, um, to hear about. Yeah. I mean, I think we all go back there for a different reason. And initially, um, I think most guys just want to go kill an elk or kill a nice mule deer or whatever it may be. Right. That's going to be like the first metric of like, Hey, was I successful or not? Um, and I've killed five now, uh, elk in the back country. And so I've been there, been there a few times and kind of like experienced that rush. But I think it's really important to dial in like what kind of hunt that you really want to happen and then, uh, determining what success is on that. So I had a, I had a friend who, you know, he did public land hunting a couple of years goose egg uh he kind of sacked up and bought a new mexico landowner's tag on private land he went and shot a really nice bull but it was interesting talking to him afterwards like he wasn't super stoked on it because that was not the hunt he wanted he really wanted a he wanted a public land bull that he did everything not you know hopping up on a ridge and picking out which bull to shoot so you know my experience this past season was going somewhere where you know in wyoming you can't hunt the wilderness and uh, unless you got a guide or a resident with you and and I was in a place that I did not enjoy. You know, there was generators, there was motorcycles, there was chainsaw, sheep. I mean, there were elk as well. You know, three of the four of us tagged out and I had a couple of really good close chances. And um, it just wasn't the experience that I wanted. And I didn't have much fun. You know, so I ended up leaving that hunt pretty early and doing another hunt later in the year in Colorado that, you know, was the way I wanted to do it and was around good people. So I think when you're a uh, when you're sitting there kind of establishing like what you want out of the hunt, especially once you get a little more experience and you've already had the satisfaction of putting the animal down that uh, really narrow down what's going to make you happy and, and plan the kind of hunt that you like and enjoy. Yeah. yeah and as you mentioned too, and it, we've talked about that topic, I just think you can't hit it enough basically. And especially to encourage guys who maybe, maybe they haven't had the, filled those five tags yet. Like even if you're in the situation where, um, you know, you're struggling to find success, if you will, in terms of filled tags and you're considering other alternatives, like maybe those alternatives are great for you, but at the same time, think about what you truly want. Um, and as you mentioned, as we were talking, Jake, like even, even if it takes longer, like the harder you work, the longer it takes, the sweeter the reward, right? Yeah. I mean, I think I see that I did my first archery bull was in Colorado over the counter, which is, I mean, every year it's getting busier and busier. In fact, there's more hunters. And I think I hunted 27 days and I shot this little scraggly bull, man, it was barely legal. And I tell you what, I was so happy. Like it was, it was like one of the most exciting moments of my life, you know, after doing it, I guess it was my third year hunting and, uh, and doing it like on my own, on public land in the wilderness, like right there, like one or two days when the season ended, I was skinny and just beat up. And, and so I think guys just have to understand that the sport is, or the endeavor is a very challenging one with low success rates, all right? So you just got to go into it knowing that like, hey, statistically speaking, there's a really good chance I'm not going to put an animal down. I mean, you can just look at the, the success numbers state by state, unit by unit, and you have a pretty clear idea of like, hey, what are the chances of me being successful? And, and just understand that if you only go back there for five days, um, you know, every year, I mean, three years, you're only done 15 days of hunting. Like how, how good can you really get in 15 days of something, you know, and those animals are back there every day, you know, practicing how to survive and you're going to you know, step into their zone and try to like outsmart them at their own game. It's like, that's kind of a hard thing to do. Um, so I would just say guys who have been going public land and 
haven't had their chance yet. Uh, just keep plugging away. Um, there is no easy answer unless you live like where Steve lives and you're, you know, an hour away from the back country and you can scout and uh, basically be back there year round. It's a really hard uh, task to go out from Texas or Iowa, Florida, and go back there with five or six days to hunt and put down an animal. I mean, it's a challenging task. Just understand it, but keep plugging. And when it happens, you'll be really happy. Right on. Cool. To wrap it up, um, you know, two things. One is we did work with you guys, I guess, a couple of years ago at this point to do a free training plan, um, which guys can get. Just go to exomountaingear.com forward slash train, T-R-A-I-N. Um, and thanks to you guys for doing that. I know that hundreds, probably thousands of people have downloaded that, done it. We get questions on it. You guys get questions on it. It's been great. And that's more geared towards like preseason, you know, closer to the hunt type stuff, fairly hunt specific integrates a lot of what we talked about today um for now like let's say it's january february if guys listen to this um and took it in and comprehended it i think they can develop their own template if you will of like okay here's what i should be doing you know they could be a self-starter and piece that together but for guys who who need that um you know they need to follow a program if you will right like me i can geek out, I can build my own thing, do my own thing. Not everybody's wired that way, which is fine. So long story short, you guys don't hard sell stuff, but I want to point people to you guys as a resource because through Atomic Athlete, you do have um, great training programs and a ton of them. And as we talked about, that's not specific to hunting. You guys, that's not the market you're trying to hit solely. Um, You have all kinds of programming. So, but what are some things if a, if a guy needs a plan for now and it's, you know, to hit some of the things we talked about in terms of working in base and developing that, if they come to you guys for that, can you maybe just mention a couple of the programs that you guys offer that you would point them to? Um, cause if they go to your site now, they're going to see a million different options that they could do. Some of which are completely irrelevant to hunting and what we talked about today. So like, what are a few key standouts of Right now, this time of year, building base, training smart to lead them to a good position. Yeah, definitely. I'd say um, one program that comes to mind is uh, War Machine. It's kind of our military program. It's uh, very basic in design, a little on the higher volume side. So I probably wouldn't suggest that for you know guys who are over 40, but guys who are in their 20s. That's going to be a great one. And then you can roll right in like the ultimate predator after that. Um, older guys who don't like the gym. Um, all the minimal programs, like the sandbag, the kettlebell, the body weight only. If you're not currently training, those are good all-around um, programs to do. And especially if you couple that with like one of our uh, aerobic-based protocols, whether that's like the foundation or um, endure. So I think the, the key thing is guys need to do is they need to do some type of strength training, probably one, two, maybe even three times a week, depending on their age and their ability to handle volume. And then they need to start building the base, and they're probably going to be working on that two to four days a week, depending on available time. So um, at this point right now, like I said, you can do high intensity stuff. If you're a young guy and you enjoy CrossFit, CrossFit's fine to kind of work on right now. Just make sure you're going out, you're building um, your aerobic base and you're actually moving over ground because that's the real big factor. It's like you got to be able to move over ground when you go to the mountains and you need to start that now so you can build those structural changes in the body. Jordan, you got, you got any suggestions on that, Jordan? Um, well, br- broadly, I would say if you, if you go to the site, um, up at the menu bar, it's going to say online training. And then if you check out the individual programs and click over to endurance, 
or mountains, those are going to give you a little bit of a filtered list of what you should be working at, working on. I would definitely say uh, Endure and the foundation are two that I would really point point guys to um, right now. Uh, and then probably go over to the, to the strength portion and look at some of those strength pr- training protocols. Uh, uh, Ronin and Shogun, actually, Jake, what do you think about those for those guys? Um, yeah. For, yeah. for a little bit of bet. Yeah, I think, I think that yeah, those... if, you, if you want to do a little work on a barbell and like say you are a thinner guy or yeah, you know, like, like Ronin's a great basic strength protocol. It's got some it's awesome. capacity in there. Yeah, you mix that in with one of the um, slow and low uh, going over ground programs. Great combination. Yeah. Yeah, cool. Well, I know that you guys, um, you know, you'd be happy to answer questions. I see you doing that all the time. So the website's Atomic-Athlete, correct? Yes, it is. Okay, cool. So yeah, if guys want to go there, check out programs and then have questions on programs or maybe, as you mentioned, like mix up programs, um, they can get in contact with you through there and I know you'd be happy to help. But guys, thanks for the time today. We really appreciate it. Absolutely, Mark. Appreciate it, man. Well, guys, thank you so much for tuning in. I hope that was helpful to uh, guide you in understanding how to train, how much to train and make the most of your fitness for hunting. If you even need to work on that, maybe that's not your weakness and you just need to keep with the program and work on other areas. I will say I have um, done atomic athlete training for years before I even knew these guys, before I ever talked to them, before they're ever on the podcast. And I recommend not only their training program for hunting, which you can get for free at exomountaingear.com forward slash train, but just their general fitness. Like I work out at home on my own with limited equipment and they have a ton of plans that help me in the off season to work on my weaknesses, whatever I'm addressing in that. So go check them out at atomic-athlete.com. If you need anything from us, if we can help answer a question, if you have a topic idea or any other feedback, send us an email to podcast at exomountaingear.com and we will catch you next week.